the FT. Something big is happening to Google. Something even bigger is happening to the Chinese economy. And back in the UK, the exploitation of migrant workers by gangmasters is coming into focus. On this podcast, we'll be discussing all of those issues and hearing about the best business books of the year, as chosen by the FT and McKinsey. I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the Financial Times podcast. Let's start with Google, which is reinventing itself 11 years after becoming a public company. In a nutshell, it's founded as a board of running a highly profitable search business and now want to run a whole conglomerate of exciting tech businesses. Here's Richard Waters, our West Coast editor, on the thinking behind the move. When we spoke to Larry Page last year, you know, he said at the time, I want Google to become more like Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company. I want us to be seen as an entity with all kinds of investments, a kind of conglomerate for the tech age. And that's effectively now what they're doing. Warren Buffett is actually pretty different. His conglomerate likes companies that are already dominant and profitable, like Heinz. And Precision Cast Parts, a US engineering group, it agreed to buy this week for $32 billion. Compare that to Google, whose plans for driverless cars and longer lives are still just hopes. Some of these bets are going to take years, decades to pay off if they ever do. But I think one of the motivating factors for Google has been we don't want to become Microsoft. We don't want our massive core business to simply start to atrophy when the world moves on. We want to use all that money to really bet on the future. So right now it looks very distorted. It's an animal with only one strong leg and it's going to take years for more legs to develop. But nonetheless, you know, that's the plan. Shares in Google, or Alphabet as it's now to be called, rose after the new structure was announced. Investors speculate perhaps they'll have more access to information on how Google's individual businesses are doing. The new structure may also have another potential advantage for some. Here's Richard Waters again. This is the real wild card, is that some investors are saying, you know, once you disclose these different things and we start to look at these businesses differently and you manage them differently, long term... There's no reason for Google to stay together. These businesses may indeed start to spin off or split up. And Wall Street loves that kind of story. So maybe the alphabet conglomerate won't last forever. Talking of tech companies, the long list for the FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year was published this week. And it features a biography of Elon Musk, a tale about the decline of BlackBerry and a tome about robots. Andrew Hill, our management editor, is here now to discuss the list. Andrew, it seems like tech books are in vogue. Yeah, that's right. We've got, uh, depending on how do you define it, six or seven on the list of 15 books that are going forward for judges to look at for the Book of the Year award. And I think partly that reflects the fact that there are some exciting technology stories out there. People are looking forward. Last year, we had Second Machine Age on the list, which looked at sort of automation and jobs. We've got another book on Rise of the Robots with the same sort of theme this year. But also, I think we're interested and publishers are always interested in looking at the sort of exciting prospects of the future. The Elon Musk biography you mentioned is one, obviously, with his interest in Tesla and SpaceX. And people are also interested always in what when things go wrong. So losing the signal about how BlackBerry declined is a sort of cautionary tale in technology. 
And the Elon Musk book, as I understand it, gives a picture which is really of an entrepreneur who is as driven as Steve Jobs was. Yes. I mean, I think what's interesting is this is a book written sort of in mid-career for Elon Musk. It's sort of warts and all. It's not a hagiography by any means, which is one of the reasons which makes it so good, I think. And it does give you a picture of somebody who is driving from a management point of view, driving a company or companies, enterprises, towards extraordinary goals. We'll be wanting a second volume, I think, to see how he turns out. BlackBerry, we kind of know the ending there. It's a, it's a different story. Is it possible to already write a book about BlackBerry and say what went wrong? Well, I think there's always a risk if the company still exists, which of course BlackBerry does, that uh, you're confounded by the next episode, possibly a revival in some different form. But this is a book that really is a journalistic investigation, really, into what went wrong. And the two Canadian journalists who have uh, written it have done a great job of digging into the relationship between the co-founders or the co-CEOs before it uh, went uh, pear-shaped and looking a little bit at, uh, at how that relationship developed for good and ill. And finally, there are fewer books on the list about the financial crisis, about banks, about lending. Does that mean we've almost said all we need to say for now about those issues? I'm a bit reluctant, Henry, to say that it's all over for the financial crisis books. We've got one on this year, Black Horse Ride by Owen Fallon, about the Lloyd's HBOS takeover. We had a period in the middle of the last 10 years, which we've been running this award, where there were a lot of books about the crisis and people mainly looking back. So we may be getting a bit jaded about it. But they do say that there are books that uh, can take a historical perspective. The further away you get from the event, the more profound an analysis you can do. So I'd be... I think it would be a gamble to rule out that there won't be some great books about the crisis looking back at it in the coming years as well. Great. Andrew, thanks very much. The winner of that award is announced in November. The big economic news this week came from China, which weakened its currency. This is a big change of direction. For years, other countries have complained the renminbi is already too weak, giving China an advantage in selling its goods around the world. China had been gradually strengthening the renminbi and trying to move its economy away from a reliance on exports. So why make a change now? James King, our emerging markets editor, explained that China's economy is in severe distress. It's probably very unlikely that China's growing at 7%, as the official numbers show. In reality, the Chinese economy is probably growing closer to 4%. So it needs every little bit of help it can get. And although a 4% depreciation in the renminbi is not going to change China's export fortunes overnight, it is going to help somewhat in combination with several other policy actions it's taking, such as cutting interest rates, cutting the bank required reserve ratios, stimulating investment, etc. Even while growth was at 7% or more, China's rulers spoke urgently about the need to move away from an export-led economy to more balanced growth, where consumers saved less and shopped more. By boosting exports again, have the authorities given up on that? My view is no, they haven't yet abandoned it, but they are getting closer and closer to crossing some of the red lines that they said they wouldn't cross. The rebalancing effort by the Chinese authorities of their economy has a couple of main aspects. One is to shift from being an investment-led economy to a consumption-driven economy. And the other one is to cut down those industries that are mired in overcapacity. This rebalancing so far has been painful, and it has been achieving both of those aims. But what we're beginning to see now is signs that the Chinese authorities are starting 
to open the investment taps again, not in a very obvious sort of uh, pump priming way, but in more subtle ways. And the question is, will this then turn back the clock and reverse some of the progress which has been made in cutting down those industries blighted by overcapacity? We'll have to see what happens. But it is looking more and more, in my view, as if the Chinese are finding the pain inherent in this transition a bit too tough to take. For our final story this week, we head back to the UK. Many newspapers are talking about migration and wondering whether migrants are abusing Britain's benefit system. Helen Worrell, the FT's public policy correspondent, looked at the opposite problem, that British employers may be abusing migrants' cheap labour. Zudonis Barbax, a representative of Boston's Latvian community, has compiled a report on the labour abuses experienced by his countrymen. These include being paid less than the minimum wage, the use of zero-hours contracts to employ several people for one job, and workers being charged for transport to and from the fields. The body which is meant to clamp down on such abuse, the Gangmasters Licensing Authority, has had its funding cut in recent years, meaning it can do fewer inspections. Helen Worrell spoke to Paul Gleeson, a Labour councillor in Boston, The gangmasters make profit from encouraging far too many people to come to work in Boston. By having too many people here, they're able to drive down wages, and at the same time, they're profiteering from the rents these people are paying. So it's making life difficult, both for new workers coming from Europe and for local people, because wages are low and rents are too high. That's all for this week. Our producers were Fiona Simon and Feline Reyes. We'll be back next Friday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might like our new show, FT Investigations, Exposés and In-Depth Analysis by our worldwide network of reporters. The show's broadcast whenever we have a new groundbreaking investigation. You can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.